The scripture this morning is taken from the 27th chapter of Matthew, verses 11 through 54. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You say so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many accusations they make against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the festival, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas, and to have Jesus killed. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? All of them said, Let him be crucified. Then he asked, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Then the people as a whole answered, His blood be on us and on our children. So he released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. After mocking him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they came upon a man from Serena named Simon. They compelled this man to carry the cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots. Then they sat down there and kept watch over him. Over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two bandits were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he wants to, for he said, I am God's son. The bandits who were crucified with him also taunted him in the same way. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and those with him, who were keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were terrified and said, Truly this man was God's son. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We've been um, deep into a sermon series called Fearless, the Courage to Question. And um, as part of the sermon series, we've hopefully been asking and answering some somewhat difficult questions. Am I afraid to die? Why do I feel empty? Is God hiding or am I blind? Does God weep for me? Today we ask a question, why do bad things happen to good people? Ooh, that's a tough one. Probably why Al decided to let me preach this Sunday. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, let's try something this morning, church. Let's try something. Let's see if we can begin by finding some common ground. If I say, God is good, you say, all the time, all the time. All right, let's try again. God is good. All the time. Let's try this one. Christ is good. All the time. Easy enough. We can agree on those two, right? All right, let's see if we're together on this next one. People are good. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, all right. There it is. There it is. We didn't even practice that, did we? That's essentially the sermon for today. God is good. Christ is good. We are not so good. But I can already see some of the feathers beginning to ruffle. Oh, surely, surely, Pastor Phil, you are not suggesting that I am a bad person. To which I say, come on, y'all. It's relative. From here to Jesus, how close do you think you really are? Let's talk about it a little bit more. Let's keep thinking on this. Why? 
do bad things happen to good people? Why does an all-powerful and all-loving God simply sit by and allow floods, earthquakes, assault, murder, a whole cacophony of evil and destruction? Why are refugee children allowed into boats only to wash up on the shore? Why are entire towns demolished with airstrikes? Or why are thousands of people washed out to sea in a violent tsunami? Why do these things happen? There are times when we can theologically ask ourselves these questions with a genuine desire to grasp something that seems impossible to understand. And there are other times still when we cry out in the midst of our grief, our suffering, and our loss. How can God let this happen to me and mine? Why wouldn't God stop this pain and help me? Consider the Holocaust, the abduction and murder of a loved one, the long and painful death of a kind and gentle person. Where is God? Why does this happen? Surely this has nothing to do with me and my decisions. I can't control the weather. I don't have the power or the authority to stop war. I can't afford to feed everyone or to house everyone. I am a good person. I do not deserve this. They too are good people. They are innocent. They don't deserve this either. Where is God? Where is love? Where is the almighty and omnipotent Lord of all creation? Well, this morning I am of the mind that the horrors and the tragedies that fill our TV screens and appear as notifications on our phones are the result of a world that is simply separated from God. They are the end equation of a people who have consistently made bad decisions. Decisions based off of selfishness and greed. Decisions of ignorance and prejudice. Decisions of personal power that are made apart from God. It wasn't always this way, though. No, no, no. This was not God's intention. The life that we are living right now was not our designed purpose. This is not what we were made for. We were not made for such pain. We were not designed to withstand such devastation and such depravity. My friends, there was a time when we lived free of sin and fear. There was a time when we were safe from natural disasters, when God was so close that you could hear your, vo your name be whispered by the voice of our Creator. There was a time when we could truthfully, honestly, and wholeheartedly say that people were good. A time where we were living as God intended us for us to live, safe and warm, living in the perpetual light, grace, and in the presence of all that is love. But we gave it all up. Gave it all up for a piece of fruit. Through choices that were completely our own, we decided that we knew what was best. We knew what we wanted. 
We could be like God. We could be equals with the Alpha and the Omega. And from that moment forward, our lives have been awash with sin and destruction. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God made everything and everything was awesome. Genesis chapter 3, oh, you done messed up now, children. Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. Welcome to 33% of the global population being murderers and living for the rest of eternity in a broken, sinful, fearful, selfish world. It's that quick. Now let me tell you, in all honesty, that sucks. Like tried and true. For every person who has ever lived following our exile from the garden, it feels like we've gotten a raw deal. It feels like we have not been afforded the same opportunity to live with God and exist harmoniously with all of creation. It's like we now have to live in a world that was created by the mistakes of others but are still expected to exist, contribute, and perform at some unattainably high standard. And as someone who was looking for a job in 2007 and 2008, I hear you. As someone who might have to eventually explain to my children one day that due to our disregard for the environment, the city of Virginia Beach is now located where Richmond used to be, I hear you. But we live with the decisions of people who came before us. That much is true. It's true for me, it's true for you, and it's going to be true for my children. But you might be saying, Pastor Phil, that's not right. That is not fair. Surely God can make it right. Surely we can start this again. And I would say, yeah, of course we could. Of course God can do that. God has even tried it. Between our exile from the garden and the arrival of Jesus, there were many times when God tried to fix all of this. There were times when God made some pretty big movements to recreate perfection. As part of our conversation this morning, you might be asking yourselves, God, why don't you just get rid of all the bad people? Keep only us good people around. Well, God tried that. Flooded everything. Didn't work out too well. Only kept around one particular family, but even Noah was known to hit the sauce a little too hard sometimes. Generations passed. Angels appeared. Evil and sinful cities were destroyed with fire. Children were had. Birthrights were stolen. The people of Israel settled in Egypt and were taken captive. Again, oh, we need some help. This is not good, God. Moses shows up and God kills the firstborn of all the Egyptians. He moves an entire ocean to deliver them from slavery, finally taking out the entirety of Pharaoh's army. All the bad people, again, were gone. The good people were left. And God's people were on their way to the promised land with God literally providing them with manna from heaven, with God literally following them around as a great cloud. But still the people faltered, building false idols, complaining about the food, sleeping around, denouncing God, etc., etc. My point here is this. Even if it was just us, just those of us who are in this church right now. We couldn't make it. 
We wouldn't last in the garden even if we had the chance because God is good. Christ is good. But we are not. And since we no longer dwell in the protection and safety of the garden, we are susceptible to the full force of humanity's sin, of our sin, and we are vulnerable to the hazards of this world. God said, because you have eaten of the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and unto dust you shall return. So here we are. Now what? Are we doomed forever to endure the suffering of this world? Susceptible to the power of nature and vulnerable to the sins of our brothers and our sisters? Is this really all there is? In short, yeah. Yeah. Bad things happen because at some point we chose to live a life that was contrary to God's will. And even if you think you didn't choose it, it was chosen for you. And as I said, yes, that, that sucks. But here we are. Do you know pain, hurt, fear, anger, and greed? Do you know someone who does? That's the world we have right now. And if we're not actively working to make it better, then we are complicit in allowing it to continue. Because the cross was it. God has done his part, and until Jesus returns again, there is nothing else in line that I know of to make life any easier. And just to be clear, to be extremely clear, the path of the cross, our reading for today, the events of this coming week and Easter morning, they're really more about the next life than this one. And that's a really difficult thing for me to say, and perhaps even a difficult thing to hear. But my friends, we must begin to look at our present circumstances through the lens of eternity. Eternity is a long, long time. And since the beginning, from the moment we stepped out on our own, God has been working to reconcile all of creation back to himself. Killing off the bad people does not work providing for our every need and following us around does not work. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and it is only through the cross, only through the sacrificial life and death of Jesus Christ that we may rest assured, knowing that this world, the death, the destruction, the sin, the pain, and the fear that runs rampant through our streets is only temporary it's temporary if we think back to Christmas according to the angels and the prophets Christ had come to save us Zechariah's prophecy from Luke chapter 1 
God has looked favorably upon his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior. We would be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's what God wants. And God gets what he wants. From the prophet Isaiah, comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid. He will feed his flock like a shepherd and he will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom. Have you not known have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host and numbers them, calling them all by name, because he is great in strength, mighty in power, and not one of them is missing. Not one. And if there's nothing else you leave here today, it's important to note that on that line, it has struck out to me all week, that God loves the abuser just as much as the abused. Through the words of the prophet Jeremiah, God said, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their pasture and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing. And so at Christmas, God came. God came and through the birth and life of Jesus Christ, God once again walked among mortals speaking life into the dust. God fed his people, healed his people. And knowing that we could never return to the garden, knowing that we would forever lack the capacity to fully live up to our designed potential, God took every sin, every murder, every flood, every rape, assault, earthquake, every gunshot, argument, and abuse upon his back, and to ensure that this would last, that all of this would take, that there would be no more floods, no fires, and no more plagues, we attached our sin to love incarnate with nails. Bad things happen not because it is God's will, and not because God just allows it to happen. They happen due to the choices that we make, or due to choices that were made for us. It doesn't make them right, but nor does it make God wrong. And if we ever hope to live into our designed purpose, then yes, our hearts should tremble when we hear of tragedy. We should feel great sadness when we see someone in pain. Our spirits should be stirred to action 
when we encounter injustice and fear. And then in the midst of all that, we are called to follow Christ's example. We are called to feed people, to heal them, to provide comfort, grace, and mercy. Christ came to show us how to make it through, how to live in this world. Jesus did not come to remove the troubles of now, but to prepare us for the glory of what is to come. Because eternity is a long, long time. About three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. And at once one of them ran and got a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a stick, gave it to him to drink. But the others said, oh, no, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and breathed his last. In his final breaths, Jesus cried out to God, believing himself to have been forgotten, forsaken, or abandoned. And whether it was true or not, in this unique and strange miracle moment, Jesus was crying out in anguish because of the separation that he now felt that he experienced from his heavenly Father for the first and only time in all of eternity. Depending on what translation you read, I believe it is the only time that it is recorded that Jesus did not directly address God as Father. In some way and by some means, in the inner workings of this divine sovereignty and omnipotence, the God-man was separated from God for a brief time at Calvary. Jesus was separated from God as the fullness of our punishment was poured out onto the sinless Son who in matchless grace became sin for all those who believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Amen and amen.